Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We're so excited to take you into the bedroom with us, Privates. Are you ready? Let's go. You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Welcome back to Private Parts Unknown, a podcast that explores love and sexuality around the world. I'm Courtney Kosak. And I'm Sophie Alexandra. And we are taking you to Africa today, privates. No plane ticket required. That's right. We are talking about the sex lives of African women today with the author of a book by that title. Yes, we are speaking with Nana Dakwasa Cherma. She is such a delightful writer that we so loved getting to know. And what's funny about this kind of is that this is so kindred with Sophie and I. Soph, didn't you feel like this during the interview? But she has a very similar story. Her and her friend, they started a blog together, Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. And then she spun it off into this book, which also talks about the sex lives of African women. And she's been going around for years now, like a decade, asking people about their sex lives. And Soph and I were like, oh, that's what we do. That's literally <laughs> what the premise of this podcast <laughs> is. Yeah, it's a really, really incredible read and really illuminating and covers such a range of perspectives. I mean, she's talked to women that have gone through FGM or female genital mutilation. She's talked to trans women, queer women. Sex workers. Sex workers. She's talked to people in polygamous marriages. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I think she covers a lot of terrain. And this conversation in specific, we picked out some excerpts from the book to kind of use as a launch pad into the conversation. And it was just such a great combo with her. And... You'll see. We had such a great time at the end. We were like, uh, can you come back? <laughs> <laughs> and just the fact that she interviewed, she said over, what, 30 women, she said. And some of them currently live in Africa and some of them live in the diaspora. And it's interesting how she said that she saw so many similarities and she saw more similarities than she saw differences. And the excerpts are so good. I think you're going to immediately be like, okay, can I click and buy the book now before this podcast is over? <laughs> because I need to know how each of these stories ends. Yes. And the answer is you can do that and you should do that. We encourage you to buy the book for sure. And another thing is I think you're going to be surprised by a couple of the things that you learn. Like the book has a really good way and the conversation that we had with Nana as well just has a really nice way of like upending your expectations a little bit or opening your mind. And hey, I always love that. Agree. So without further ado, here's Nana Dekwa Sachirma explaining how her and her friends started their blog, Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. 
So in 2009, my best friend Malaika and I started Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women, which is actually still very much alive today, even though I feel like blogs are a little bit passe. And the inspiration Never. was... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm a blogger at heart still. The inspiration was going on a beach holiday with a group of girls and basically sitting on the beach, like all day just drinking cocktails and chatting. And time and time again, the conversation would turn to sex. But it was like a different conversation. It felt like a different conversation. It was literally just ahead of my 30th birthday. And it felt like I was with finally a group of women who were really open-minded, who were non-judgmental. And people felt really free and able to speak about like their sexual desires and their fantasies and what they had done and what they would like to do. And it just felt so freeing. And I just had this moment where I thought, why has it taken me like so long, literally until the cusp of being a 30-year-old woman, to be in a space where it felt like I could really be my true self. And, you know, Malaika was my one friend that I always felt I could be my true self with. And we met in sixth form college when we were 16 years old. At 18, she went to the States. At 19, I went to the United Kingdom. So we hadn't lived in the same space for like over a decade, but we had maintained a friendship where in those days we would write letters to each other oh. and detail like, yeah, the good old days of writing letters. I love snail mail. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And we would just write like every single detail of who we're seeing, who we're loved with, what was going on. She'd always been that special friend I could talk to about everything. So I came back and I called her and I was like, oh my goodness. You know, I just had this amazing holiday and now I want to start a blog about sex. And she was like, what's a blog? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> but she had wanted to write a book. Oh. You know, um, she had been speaking to her grandmother about her experiences of sex. So she wanted to write a book. And actually, she wanted to call the book Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. And I said to her, you know what? Let's just collaborate on this. Let's do this as a blog. And later on, we can turn the blog into a book. So that's how we started the blog. And yeah, it's been a, an amazing journey. Round about 2015, I just felt like I wanted to write a book about the sex lives of African women. And I wanted to interview as many African women as possible from across the continent, from across the diaspora, about the experiences of sex and sexualities and put that in a book form. And yes, that's the book that you have in your hands today. Amazing. So, well, I mean, you're writing from a place where, I mean, sex is always kind of taboo, right? But I feel like culturally, you're from Ghana and maybe it's a little more taboo. If you could kind of speak to that. And then, yeah, I would love to, you list it in the book, but it's so fun how many people you interviewed and where everybody's from and kind of the breakdown. Sure. So growing up, I really feel I wasn't told anything meaningful about sex. All I was really told was don't do it. And there was no discussion really of what it was. You just knew it was something really bad, right? Yeah. And then I remember that on Sundays, we had this sort of weekly soap, um, the show on, on TV, and the protagonist was this male pastor. And what would inevitably happen in every single episode was that a young teenage girl will fall pregnant and, you know, her life will be destroyed. She'll be cast out by her family. She'll be miserable. The guy who had impregnated her would abandon her. And then at that moment, my mom would always say, look, 
this is what happens when you mess around with boys. So I was so scared of boys growing up. I did not want to be cast out by my family. You know, so I really didn't grow up in an environment where I felt like I was really given comprehensive sex education about sex. Mm-hmm. And so I just really wanted to change that, you know, and contribute to change that and create a space where women could speak openly and honestly to each other about sex. Because I felt like I was in this ridiculous situation where on one hand you expected not to have sex, but then you expected suddenly by a certain age to get married and have children. And there was nothing that was to bridge the two. You know? Yeah. Um, and so to answer the question about my book and how many women I interviewed, I interviewed over 30 women from so many countries, from Kenya, Zimbabwe, Senegal, the UK, the US, Canada, Malawi. You know, I really wanted to go for as much breath as possible. And also Pre-pandemic times, my job allowed me to travel a lot. So I would travel for conferences, for events. And so almost everywhere I went, I would just look for somebody to interview. And I'd be like, I'm writing a book. Can I interview you? (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. Like, it's so relatable for us because that's what we do. We go different places and we're like, tell us about your sex life. (laughs) Yeah. And it's incredible. A lot of people actually want to talk about their sex lives, right? Like, people are always like, how did you get people to talk to you about their sex lives? But I think because... You know, even still, we don't really have a lot of space to talk about sex. People are actually always eager to talk about sex. It's mm-hmm. true. We we found the same thing. What you were saying about the way that that you grew up without much sex education and just it wasn't a part of it, it, it leads me to one of the things that you said that I found really powerful where you said pleasure is political. Absolutely. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about what that means. Yes, At least I feel like in the part of the world that I've grown up in, we're never told about pleasure as part of sex, right? It's like sex has to have a purpose. Mm -hmm. And usually the purpose is to please your husband, not to please yourself, to please your husband. And of course, the assumption is that you're going to be in a heterosexual relationship. And it's to have children. You know, the idea of you as a woman having sex just for the sheer joy of sex, just for the fun of it, just because you enjoy it, just because orgasms feel so damn good. You know, that never comes up. (laughs) And so I feel like for you to say, actually, I want to have sex just because I like having sex. I enjoy having sex. It's fun. It makes me feel good. It's extremely political. And I think society and capitalist society tries to make women serve functional purposes in the world and ask feeling pleasure in their own body is not seen as something that's functional. And that's why I think it's political to say, you know what? Pleasure is political and I am just going to do what feels good for my body. What would you say are the things that struck you that were really different from location to location since you interviewed such a wide variety of people and they're all so geographically different, like the U.S. and, you know, Kenya and that everyone has their own experience. What would you say were like the differences that struck you? I feel like I was actually struck more by the commonalities than the difference, right? Um, Obviously, as Africans, we live in a, I don't even know if it's accurate to say, I guess you can say a neocolonial world, you know, where we've been influenced by the colonizers, whether those were British or whether those were, you know, Arabs, you know, and I feel like that effect of colonization is actually still really, really strong on the continent. So many of us have on our books laws that literally ban homosexuality and they come from the colonial era. 
there was that in common. You know, many of us may identify as Christians or Muslims. And again, these are, in a sense, foreign influences. And that still affects how people negotiate their relationships today. So a lot of that was in common. Even when you had Africans who had grown up in the diaspora, who were maybe second generation Africans, you know, second generation immigrants, their parents had really tried to inculcate what they saw as their traditional culture, you know, which was really heavily influenced by the religion of the colonizers, to put it frankly. Can you talk a little bit about the non-heterosexual relationships that you talk to people about considering it is so more taboo because of these colonialist laws? Mm, Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the things that for me was really interesting that I found was that the people who were having the best sex lives were the people who were actually not in conventional heterosexual relationships. Uh It was mainly the poly people, the queer people, they were having the best sex lives. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's not surprising because I think once you're like, I am not going to live my life by society's rules, I think it allows you to open up to more experiences, right? To discover yourself, to figure out what makes you feel good, to help you figure out what you enjoy. I wanted you to speak a little bit about the way that you use the word African in your politics as a mm. pan-Africanist, because I think a lot of people probably are not familiar. Yes. No, that's a great question. And I have to say on the continent, it's been the one critique some people have had of my book. They're like, but there are so many people that are not really African. I'm like, what do you mean they're not really African? So I identify as pan-Africanist. And so I recognize people as African to be people who are from the continent, but also people who are separated from the continent because of slavery, because of colonization, because of migration. And, you know, until a few years ago, I had no idea that there were people of African descent in places like Honduras, Costa Rica. You know, it had never really crossed my mind. When I went to the north of Brazil, it really felt to me like I was walking on the streets of Accra or the streets of Lagos. You know, these were people who had maintained a distinct African culture. And so for me, it was really important that my book be as expansive as possible in its definition and understanding of of who we are as an African people. Because we are scattered all over the globe for a reason. And in a sense, I guess I wanted to contribute to bringing us together in the form of a book. Yes, I think people might be surprised to read my book and find out, oh, that's a woman from Costa Rica featured, you know? But that's because she has African heritage. And it was important for me to include those stories as well. I think that's one of the coolest parts of the book. And you're right, you do see the same themes kind of come out, even though the stories are happening around the world. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. And it's also important, and like the way that you said, pleasure's political, it is also, you know, an act of resistance to write this book and to bring people together in this way and to allow for more freedom and more unity through just these interviews. So I think it's really important and I hope that more people think about heritage as being affected by colonialism and slavery and that that really is something that white people don't think about a lot in terms of oh, well, you can just trace your grandparents or whatever. So I feel like this is doing a service in so many ways. And yeah, I just, it kind of blew me away. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that.
Privates, it is finally starting to be springtime. And that means one thing only. Everyone is hornier than they just were. And I, for one, am living for it, Court. Yes, romping all the time. (laughs) My new life motto. (laughs) And you know what really helps a person romp? (laughs) Rail correctly? (laughs) Yes. It is like a kitten because they will ship you a gift box with all your erotic essentials. And that means anything from vibrators to massage oils to robes to handcuffs to lingerie. It is truly your one-stop shop for a perfect evening. That's right. And this month, they're helping you choose your own adventure with their BYOB box, aka build your own box. You get to choose one item out of each of their six categories toys, beauty products, lubes and cleansers, games, sexy accessories, and lingerie. Within each category, you have eight or more products you can choose from, so you can build an experience that's customized to your specific desires. So, for example, you can do a little hard and soft play, like you can get a little feather tickler, but then you can get a little crop action. Um, You can get a little clit cream to really take your orgasms to the next level. You can get a really cute Zalo heart-shaped vibrator that's hot pink that I love that has little 24K accents. Listen, I love a tickler pendant. I love the Treasure Hunter vibes. The monogamy board game. I like the cards with the sexual positions. Yes, sometimes you need that to spice things up. And what's amazing is that this entire box only costs $79. And some of the vibrators alone retail for $79. So the entire box of six gifts is a steal. And right now, Like a Kitten is offering our listeners 15% off and free shipping when you go to likeakitten.com slash private or enter code private at checkout. Just go to likeakitten.com slash private or use code PRIVATE to get 15% off these incredible boxes. Likeakitten.com slash PRIVATE. The link is in this episode's description. Meow. Should we dive into some excerpts from the book? Yes. Okay, awesome. Very excited about this. So who do you think we should start with? I think we should start from the beginning. <laughs> yes. Okay. And start with Nura's story. So Nura is the woman who, at the time I interviewed her, identified as heterosexual, originally from Senegal. Sorry, originally from Kenya. I interviewed her in Senegal, where she had moved to be with a man she had married. But let me not say too much. Let me just go into it so that I don't give too many spoilers. (laughs) My sister wives and I have nothing in common. Well, that's not exactly true. We have his excellency in common. We are all married to the same man. Ishmael and I met in 2018 on Muzmatch, a dating app for Muslims looking to get married. By then, I had been a convert for about four years, and I knew that I needed to expand my circle of potential suitors. I wasn't born into a Muslim family, and so I couldn't rely on my own networks to meet the kind of man that I wanted to be with. The Muslim men I met in my own country, Kenya, were incredibly conservative, and I wanted to meet a man who was more like me, well-traveled, and with a global view of the world. When Ishmael and I started chatting, our conversations felt very easy. I found myself laughing a lot. He was also respectful. 
he didn't even hit on me. Around the same time, my aunt, who lives in Canada, had started a relationship with a Congolese man. She told me how much he adored her and how loved she felt. I started to wonder if this was just how francophone men were. Then Ishmael told me he wanted to travel to Nairobi to see me. I told him that I didn't want to meet him unless we were meeting as husband and wife. And so an imam married us online. When we met, I thought his pictures and even our video chats had not captured him accurately. He looked like the stereotype of a Senegalese man, six feet tall and skinny. The phrase melanin poppin was coined <laughs> to describe people <laughs> like him. He also has this air of a quiet, confident masculinity. He practices martial arts and is really strong. You wouldn't think he was in his late 40s if you met him. The first time we met, we spent four days together in a hotel. All we did was fuck and pray. That was really <laughs> important to me. <laughs> Sensuality and spirituality are two sides of the same coin. And I wanted to be with a partner I could lend the faith with. From a place of curiosity and not oppression. I found Islam in my late 30s. I had been searching for a spiritual practice that spoke to who I was as a Black African woman, and in the Islamic faith, I found one that also spoke to the social and environmental justice issues that are important to me. When Ishmael left Nairobi, I was in a daze. I had found this man, married, and had the most incredible bonding experience with him, and now he was gone. Two months later, I flew to Senegal and visited him for two months. He arranged for me to stay in an apartment owned by his sister, and the whole experience felt like dating while married. That period taught me that I can actually be committed to someone else. When you're legally bound to a person, you don't just walk out on them. You have to show up, not only for yourself, but for the partnership you're in. It's not a simple matter of, can I deal with this person? Because it's not about the other person changing. It's about how you deal with who they are intrinsically and how they are evolving. That initial experience taught me that you can love and care for someone even if they are very different from you. Ishmael is a traditional man. He's always done what he's expected to do as a responsible Senegalese man. The most radical thing he's done has been to marry me, a woman who is in her 40s, an Anglophone, someone from a foreign country who doesn't speak Wolof or French and doesn't know his culture and traditions. The expectation in Senegal is that if a man is going to stray out of the constraints of who he's expected to marry, then he would be with a white woman. Mm. Oh my goodness. This one is so interesting. Can we start with His Excellency? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can. Is that a common thing, do you think, more within this polygamous dynamic or I was just so struck by that term she was kind of taking the piss right like okay she was, okay yeah <laughs> just wanted to make sure okay but in a way I mean she was taking the piss but she was also being real right because in the story when people read the story what they would realize is yeah in a, ma in a way this man is treated like royalty I mean she was now going to be his third wife he had certain nights he would be with each wife. So obviously each wife, uh -huh. you know, does her best. Each wife gets dressed up and cooks dinner for the whole family on the day he's coming over. 
So he is really treated like royalty. But there's a plus side, right? There's so many other nights you don't even have to bother about your husband because somebody else is dealing with him. You have all of this free time for yourself and you are totally taken care of. Your bills are paid and, you know, you only have to deal with his excellency, say, two days out of the week. I don't think it's such a bad bargain. I feel like there are women in heterosexual marriages. No, I see the upsides. You know, I'm like, okay, I could be convinced. <laughs> For real, because first of all, then the time you spend together is like much more concentrated and like focused on each other because you'll mm-hmm. you're like, OK, this is the time we've set apart and it's special. And then also mm-hmm. the other rest of the time you can go hard at your career or anything else you're into, you know. Exactly. OK, but the other wives, <laughs> let's talk about the other wives because they were sabotaging her a little bit or like not trying to help her or just being kind of bitchy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Nura was being idealistic, right? I think she had somehow imagined she was going to have this perfect sisterhood with uh-huh. these other women, and they were like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> who are you and where did you come from? So, yes, she did not have the kind of ideal sisterhood that she was looking for, which I think made the story even more fun. Like, I actually interviewed Nura in two parts. The first time I interviewed her, she was living in her husband's sister's apartment. So she hadn't yet moved into the home with everybody else. And so the whole story was very like happy-go-lucky. And I was like, ha, I don't think this is going to remain the same. So <laughs> at, the <end> the <laughs> at the end of the interview, I said to her, you know what? I want us to reconnect after you've moved into your husband's home with the other wives. And let's speak again in a few months' time. And then I got the other side of the story. And I was like, it sounds really horrible. I was like, yes, this is more like it. <laughs> you know? This is more real. <laughs> So ultimately, I mean, because it's like a little mini culture shock, right? Being this independent woman going into this polygamous dynamic. Do you think she was ultimately happy with her decision? I think what I liked was that was a conscious decision that she made. And part of why I like that story is because for me, it's a reminder that, you know, heterosexuality is not the only valid relationship structure. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of struck by Nura making this choice because in a sense, she's a woman just like me, a contemporary African woman. Mm-hmm. Like she herself says, she's well-traveled, she's educated. I myself come from a polygamous family, but I have never considered being in a polygamous marriage because I just felt like, why is the man going to get to have two wives or three wives and then I have no <laughs> choice but to have one husband, Right. And so I was really struck by meeting a woman who was just like me, but had made a different choice. And in speaking to her, I had to like say, okay, I mean, it's a valid choice. You know, especially if you compare to traditional heterosexual marriages, I didn't feel that polygamous marriage was inherently more oppressive than a traditional heterosexual marriage. I felt like I could make a case that the traditional heterosexual marriage of one man, one woman is more oppressive to women than a polygamous marriage. I feel like a polygamous marriage actually gives women more space, literally more space, (laughs) several days of the week where you don't have to deal with your husband. But, you know, the bargain is that your husband is taking care of all your needs. And I'm like, hmm, this is not that bad. Plus, he may not know if I have a love on the side, will he? Yeah. (laughs) Good point. Does it ever go the other way? I never see a woman with like multiple husbands. 
Does that ever happen? Well, women don't marry multiple husbands because they just are like, I have one and then I have a bunch of like lovers and boyfriends. Exactly. I think that's what is more of the norm, right? And the women usually have to keep their lovers like secret. Mm. Yeah. But I'm I'm convinced that in polygamous marriages, women were not necessarily just sitting around waiting for their husbands to come around and have their turn with them. You know, I'm so convinced by that. Yeah, they got some extra time to make some other things happen. So in your parents' case, though, did you see that modeled a happy, you know, healthy version of polygamy? You know, when you say that's a valid choice, like, is that what you saw where you're like, oh, I see how this works? Yeah. But at the time, I didn't think of it as well, I think when you grow up in a particular situation, that situation is normal to you, right? Right. So growing up, I always knew that there were some nights that my dad spent at our house and there were some nights that he wasn't there. And the nights that he wasn't there, those were the nights that I'd have my boyfriend's visit. You know? because <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't be there to be like, who are you, young man? You know, so I always really enjoyed like having my dad there part time. And at the same time, I knew he was constantly there for me. You know, and I think part of what I saw in my mom model was how to ensure security for your children, even if you were in a polygamous marriage. Mm. So I feel like that's something that I've definitely taken away from her. And, you know, I also saw how she and my dad were happier than a lot of other couples. Like right until he passed, literally two years ago, you know, they were always like a happy couple, really loving, had fun, would go out, you know, to bars, to restaurants, go out for parties together. It definitely wasn't a perfect marriage, but it looked to me to be a bit more perfect than a lot of traditional marriages that I saw around me. So if you know how big of a pain in the ass HJs can be, right? Yeah, and a pain in my wrist, honestly. Damn. (laughs) Seriously. Well, Beducated is bringing us all some relief because their latest course is all about handjob mastery. It teaches you penis anatomy and pleasure techniques for giving the most gratifying handjobs ever. I love learning from Beducated. Basically, Beducated is like the Netflix of sexual wellness. They believe that sexual happiness is trainable, and so they have an online course platform with easy-to-follow video, audio, and written guides. They provide techniques and information to level up your love life. Plus, they offer an expert-backed library of courses from Tantra to Kink to explore new practices and upgrade your lovemaking skills, and not just on a physical level, also on an emotional and mental level, too. Like, I just took a course called Roadmap to Intimacy, And it was all about how to better take cues and feedback from your partner. And it makes your love life so much better. I love that so much. And you know what else I love? All of the Beducated subscription benefits. You get unlimited access to all their online courses. You get 100 plus hours of video and audio content. You get tips from their world-renowned educators. And you get new content every week that's also super high quality. And you can stream it on any device. So here's a hot tip, privates. You can join Beducated for as little as $9.99 per month when you use our code PRIVATE. That's 65% off when you use our coupon code PRIVATE at Beducated.com. That's B-E-D-U-C-A-T-E-D.com and use code PRIVATE. The link is in our episode description. Should we explore another person's story? Yes. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay, I think 
Chenga story is also one that I really enjoy. Yeah, and kind of a good example of diaspora too, right? Absolutely, yes. So Chenga is Black British with her roots from Zimbabwe and the Caribbean. My attraction to straight cis men is the bane of my life. It's a (laughs) curse. They don't care about me. They don't care about my writing, my politics, my thoughts, my intellect, or the fact that I just saw a Palestinian film. They don't care about my full humanity. All they see is the jiggling of my tits and my bum. To them, I'm the modern-day Hottentot Venice. That's all that's going on. That has nothing to do with me. That's not something I can control. I have no intention of tricking any man into liking me. There's nothing of value in that for me. On the contrary, the more knowledge they have of my transness, the better for me. If they know, they can come into my life and start paying for things. They can pay me for sex work. They can buy me groceries or jewelry. They can transfer funds into my account. It is only when you are transparent that you get the material benefits of your objectification. Because men around the world, they feel that they are able to control all the spaces that I inhabit. And in that terrain, I am a sexual object. When I walk around in leggings and a vest, men see that as an invitation. After my transition, the world became a very different place for me. Men came onto me in different public places. I was chatted up while shopping for groceries in supermarkets or when riding the bus. Men came onto me in the daytime. The cat called me in the streets. I was whistled at. I can't deny that being objectified in that way felt affirming. I felt desirable. That was liberating. The men who were coming onto me felt less guilty about being attracted to me. It wasn't that I wasn't objectified before, but this time it was different. Earlier, men would point out my body with intentional violence. They were angry that they found my body arousing. The sentiment was, how dare you wear that outfit? What are you doing? Once I transitioned and became more conformist in my gender representation, I was less queer and transgressive. I wasn't seen as dangerous. The world is still a dangerous place for me, but I am not immediately regarded as dangerous. In a sense, the violence hasn't changed. It's mutated. It's changed shape. I went from being a faggot to a whore. Before my transition, I was socially and sexually involved in the gay male scene in London, although I always felt like an interloper. It was constantly made clear to me that I didn't belong there. People pointed out things about my body, my shape, and how I carried myself. At the time, I was experimenting with my gender presentation. I would wear sports clothing, and underneath, I would have a woman's underwear. I would go to gay male spaces and look for the bisexual men who would be turned on by my femininity. In those spaces, I was never anyone's first choice. The white men who dominated those spaces would be looking for their BBC and Mandingos, and my energy was the exact opposite of that. So the men I ended up having relationships with were both fluid in their sexuality and in their arousal. It always felt like I was on the fringes of the scene. In that world, I was cast more as the entertainer. I had all the charisma of a drag queen, but without the spectacle. For a brief period, I flirted with drag, but it wasn't for me. I didn't want roses in the stage. 
My femininity was not a spectacle. All I wanted to do was to manifest the divine feminine through my body and be in the world every day as myself. That wasn't available to me for many years. What's the story of how you met Kachanga and found out about Kachanga's story? I was actually introduced to Kachanga by my UK publisher, um, Charmaine Lovegrove, who is this like amazing, inspirational Black woman. Um, and yeah, she introduced us. I read up about Kuchenga and I was like, oh my God, I would love to interview Kuchenga. And initially I was hoping I could interview her face to face. I was planning to travel to London and then COVID hit. So of course, nobody was traveling anywhere. And by the time I reached out to her, she had moved from the UK to Berlin. So we ended up having the interview over Zoom. And it was just like so amazing. I felt like we had an immediate connection at the end of the conversation, she was like, oh my goodness, I told you so much more than <laughs> I was planning to, you know? Um, but that was also the experience I tended to have whenever I interviewed people. They would always say, oh my God, I just told you everything. Was everybody happy or like, okay, with the stories that wound up coming out? <laughs> that was the one anxiety I had because I didn't show people the stories before they got published, right? But so far, I haven't had a single complaint. Hey, that's pretty good. Yeah, I've even had one or two people who are anonymous say to me, in a future edition of the book, you can use my real name. Oh my God, that's yes. the highest compliment, honestly. I think so, I think so. so. That means you captured exactly what they felt their story was. Exactly. And then there's some people who are like, okay, there was one person who was like, okay, I read it and I was like, Ooh, why did I choose not to be anonymous? But they agreed very much with how I had captured their story. I love that. Well, one of the things that struck me about Kachanga's story is just the amount of like, and even in London, which you think is a pretty progressive place, is the amount of like making sure she was being safe always and like having to tell the person in the first exchange so that it didn't turn violent, you know, about her gender and transition and everything like that. And it's like, you know, when people find her transsexual has to be in all caps. So there's no question of deceit or whatever. And it's like, my, that is like a huge burden to carry. Absolutely. With your gender and sexuality constantly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I think maybe one of the things that my book does is actually, in a sense, points out that no place is safe for women, for trans women, for marginalized people. I think it's very easy for people to assume like Africa is a dark continent where people are stuck in the dark ages. But yeah, the countries that we've been told are the centers of civilization are also extremely violent towards women, particularly towards trans women. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. America is not better. I mean, the rate of murder for trans women is really high, especially trans women who are Black. Mm -hmm. And sex workers, yeah. Yeah, that's like the most marginalized group. So it is it is like raising the consciousness about people everywhere because I think it's mm -hmm. easy to be like, we don't have the problem. And it's like, no, yes. we very much have the problem. And the Violence Against Women Act, I mean, how long did that take? Just mm. happened like three seconds ago. Yeah, we don't need to, like, look far to be like, oh, this is all the stuff that's still really wrong. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
There are a few different sex worker stories in the book. Did you notice any themes or differences with those stories? No, that's a great question. Those Kuchenga story, which I've just read, there's also Solange's story, and then there's Felicity's story. I feel like there's a sort of similarity in Kuchenga's story and in Solange's story because it features travel, because it features movement. And there's a way in which being able to move from one place to another sometimes allows women to access more freedom in their lives. So Kuchenga moved from London to Berlin because in Berlin she could work legally as a commercial sex worker, right? And Solange, who originated from Rwanda, moved to Canada. And in Canada, they found the space that allowed them to come into their transness. Uh-huh. And then they decided to move back to the continent. And part of what they did when they moved back to the continent was sex work to enable them to live. And then sex work also enabled them to connect with different types of men. So uh-huh. for me, that was also really interesting. The ways in which doing sex work, in a sense, empowered people to live the lives they wanted to live, whether it was being able to travel the world or whether it was being able to actually have space and time to write, as opposed to maybe doing a menial job that took up all of their time without giving them space to, to work. And in a sense, you know, Felista's story, Felista is from Kenya, and she speaks about the age at which she was able to make a choice to become a commercial sex worker. Mm-hmm. And the joy she feels amongst her community of sex workers and the camaraderie she experiences among sex workers. And it's not something that she experiences elsewhere. So even though now she is more or less working for a network of sex workers, so you can say she's working for an NGO, she will always be a sex worker. That's an identity that's important to her. And whenever she gets the chance, she will go and hang out with sex workers. And she will still have clients because she has clients who will still contact her to this day. And so I think that's what was interesting for me. And that's what I noticed about the sex workers I interviewed, that sex work, you know, gave them access to to money. It gave them access and spaces to navigate, you know. And freedom. I mean, it's the same. We did, a, we did interviews with a series of OnlyFans creators, and it's the same thing. So actually, on that note, I mean, because of only fans. I just feel like we've had a shift in acceptance towards sex workers, you know, over the last, I, I think it's gotten a lot better over the last five years even. And obviously we still have a ways to go in the States, but have you noticed any sort of shift in Ghana or in Africa or any places that you've lived that there's been an increasing acceptance? I feel like in Ghana, we're very hypocritical in how we see and treat sex workers. You know, so in the area that I live, there are lots of commercial sex workers who literally work on the streets. And you see all the fancy cars pulling up and picking them up. But then every so often there's a raid by the police and then they all disappear for like maybe hours and they're back again. And and I feel like that's how sex workers are treated here in Ghana. They're criminalized and targeted by the police. And at the same time, there's clearly a need they're meeting because they're out on the streets all of the time. There's lots of customers, so it's obvious someone's employing them. (laughs) Exactly. Emails, groceries, laundry, the list goes on and on. There's a lot that's on your to-do list, 
But what should be at the top? The answer is you. This year, put yourself first with the help of Dipsy. We love Dipsy. Dipsy Stories is an app full of sexy audio stories. And now they even have brand new written stories as if they heard me personally begging on the podcast. (laughs) Well, no matter what format you love or who you're into or what turns you on, Dipsy helps bring the stories to life anytime, anywhere. Just close your eyes and let yourself get lost in a world where only good things happen and pleasure is your only priority. Explore your fantasies in a safe, shame-free way. Ooh, love that. And there are hundreds of stories to choose from. And they release new content every week, so there's always more to explore. And they'll even send you a newsletter with updates. Not to mention that they have wellness sessions that will help you wind down and explore and sleep sessions to help you drift off. So for listeners of this show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash private. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash private. That's dipseastories.com slash private. See you in the sheets. You talk about Waris and yes. the surprising information that you got from her story uh, that involves uh, female genital mutilation. So I was going to ask if you could talk a little bit about that. Okay, so Waris, just to give some background, she's a 39-year-old woman. When I interviewed her, she lived in London. She was born in Somalia and her family moved to Saudi Arabia when she was only 10 days old. So I'm going to read from like the middle of her story. All I had wanted was a marriage like my parents had. At home, they held hands and cuddled on the couch. Their marriage had not been an arranged one. They were from two opposing clans, but had defied their families to be together. As a child, I loved to tidy up mum's wardrobe and try on things I found. One day, I found a basket of silky delicates. It was her lingerie collection. She in turn gifted me with lingerie when I got married. Mummy always spoke about sex in a direct way. The first conversation I remember was when I was 10 years old. War had just broken out in Somalia, and my family, like all the other wealthy families, were planning their escape. Mum warned my sister and me that we, we needed to be really careful so that no one violated us. Three years earlier, she had already taken steps to ensure that we wouldn't have sex with anyone before we got married. I remember waking up that day to a house full of women. The only men around were outside killing a cow. My dad had traveled for work. And so when I saw my mom's regular caterer bringing in piles of food, I wondered why she was throwing a party while dad was away. It was obvious that there was a big event being planned. But it wasn't my birthday or my little sister's birthday either. It was a nine-year-old girl who lived next door who told me what was happening. This is an important day for you. You're going to have good men. As I asked her what that was, and she described what was going to happen to me in the next few minutes, all I could think of was, but mommy said no one should touch our bodies. Then I heard a scream from the other side of the house. I could hear my sister calling for my mother and then me in rapid succession. At that moment, I felt my soul flee my body and I wanted to follow suit. When it was my turn, I fought with everything that was within me. I kicked, I bit, 
I punched and scratched the woman holding me down. I fought so hard that the doctor had to summon his male assistant. I have never forgotten the sight of him. He was dressed from head to toe in white. It was him who held me down and took a blade to my genitals. Okay. Can you talk about the rest of her story? Yes. Um, so one of the things I really appreciated about my conversation with Juarez is she framed female genital mutilation as an example of child sexual abuse. And I found that really, really helpful because I think there's a way in which female genital mutilation is kind of held up as a barbaric practice, and it is. But then all forms of child sexual abuse are barbaric, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, what do you think of child sexual abuse as barbaric? And you think of FGM as an example of that. It allows you to see how really children need rights. You know, um, children need rights over their body and we just have to protect the rights of children. And I found that extremely helpful. Part of what I also found helpful was I also had some some of my own myths about FGM sort of basically blown away. So I had always assumed that a woman who had experienced FGM would experience no pleasure whatsoever in her life. And so in my conversation with Wara, she was telling me about a pleasurable sexual experience. And in my head, I was thinking, but how can you enjoy sex? It's impossible. You don't have a clit, you know? And so I did find a way to ask her that question in a more diplomatic fashion. <laughs> and she said, Nana, I remember the clitoris is expansive. It goes all the way up in your body. And I was just like, oh my goodness. That is so true. And that was really one of my big takeaways from her story. I found that hopeful in a lot of ways because I think it gives her agency in a way that makes it... Absolutely. Makes it so that we don't view women that have gone through FGM as just like victims. Exactly. Which I think that's all kind of the West has been fed about it. And (laughs) um, that leads me to my next question, which is about healing, which you talk about a lot in the book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Not necessarily just as it relates to FGM, just in general. Yeah. No, for me, healing was actually one of the really strong themes that came across, you know, in my conversation with women. What they were doing to heal from traumatic experiences. Or frankly, that there was still a lot of healing that needed to be done. So again, part of what I really liked about Warrior's story was, you know, she had experienced MDMA therapy and that was what she had found revolutionary. And from my conversations with women, you realized that there were different things that different people did to find healing in their life. There was a story of Shanita, for example, who started doing 100 days of self-love, which she expanded to a, a thousand days of self-love. And that involved just being celibate, eating good food, traveling, having experiences that she hadn't had ex- before. And that was extremely healing for her. And then there was someone like, Gabriella, who for her healing was going on a religious pilgrimage. And there was someone like Salma who healing for her was becoming an activist and speaking up against the violence that women experience. So for me, that really just underlined that healing is different for different people. And what's important is really to take a space and time to, to heal, really. And also that it's not a linear process, right? It is very much part of the journey of discovering yourself and figuring out yourself. What would you recommend for someone who might be listening to this who is looking for different ways to heal their sexual trauma and doesn't really know where to start? 
well, I would recommend they read this book for a start, you know, because they would also, I think, be able to take some inspiration from the different experiences of healing that other African women have had. Because I don't think that's one way to heal. So it would be impossible for me to tell someone, this is what you have to do. But I think what's important is actually to take the space and time to heal and to figure out what will work best for you and maybe try a couple of different things, right? Maybe what would, you know, 100 days of self-love look like for you? For me, I could never do 100 days of self-love if it involved celibacy. <laughs> if I wasn't have sex for 100 days, I couldn't make that like a deliberate part of my 100 days of self-love. So my 100 days of self-love journey would look very, very different. But I think people can take inspiration from the woman in this book and craft something that's bespoke for them, you know, which may not be costly, which may not necessarily involve professional therapy, but could still be an experience that enriches their lives and helps them to move on or helps them to live better with traumatic experiences that they've had. I love that. And I think you said something really important, like try a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. until the thing clicks because I think frequently you can get discouraged you're like well this person found so much healing and help here and I didn't so I I love that that's great advice I think we should wrap with the question that applies to women around the world and that is how to get a guy to eat their pussy when the guy is resistant (laughs) (laughs) Courtney you've been holding that in the whole interview huh (laughs) no I gave her a heads up. No, I was like, we got to talk about this. But no, in the book, I can't remember the the other woman's story that this applies to. It was Ebony. Ebony. And yes. you have both been in relationships with Rastafarian dudes who were very yes. resistant. And yes. so what's the answer? How do you <laughs> how do you get a guy to come around? Do you have any tips? <laughs> it's so funny because... Back in the day, I did spend a lot of time getting my ex-lover to go down on me. In this day and age, I wouldn't bother. I would be just like, okay, you don't want to go down on me. This is not going to work out. It's not a fit. It's not a yeah. fit, you know? <laughs> Who's got the time, Nana? Exactly. Who's got the time? I didn't know then what I know now. Like, seriously, I don't think you should spend too much effort trying to convince somebody to do something they don't want to do because they wouldn't be great at it anyway. Hey, that's solid advice. If someone wants to learn, that's a different story. Totally different. And then we can have several practice sessions, you know? Yes. (laughs) I'll be patient. (laughs) I was also, this is just kind of a random fact, but I didn't know in the Quran that lack of sex is grounds for divorce. I thought Mm -hmm. that was so interesting. Oh, I knew about that because sometimes it's frequently used against women in like Mm. a way that's like, oh, you're supposed to be fulfilling my needs. Oh, well, in this case. Yes. In this case, a woman used it to get a divorce from her husband who was not having sex with her regularly. It's a sword that (laughs) cuts both ways. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. This is so interesting. I feel like we kind of have to maybe even have you back because. Yeah, that was incredible. Yes, please. I'll be more than happy to come back anytime. (laughs) Maybe next time we can dive into some stories from the blog. Yes, that would be really cool. That would be so fun. And you're a blast and so knowledgeable. What an honor. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? Where should our listeners track you down online? So if they're on Twitter, my handle is Nas, N-A-S, like the rapper. Hey. <laughs> 009. <laughs> 
And then on Instagram, I'm D for Dakoa. So D F O R D A L K O A. And I also have a website, Dakoa the Writer. And if I can shout out my blog one more time, it's The Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. And these are some fun adventures indeed. So I had a blast reading your book. And like we said, we got to have you back because I love using these stories as like a, an entry into talking about sex in Africa and beyond. So thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Oh my God, I love her. She's the best, and I love her voice. I know, great voice, killer voice. Privates, you got to get this book, right? Jump on it, The Sex Lives of African Women, right now. And while you're waiting on the book to arrive, you can head on over to the blog, Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. And God, that was just so interesting. That's why she's coming back, because we're not done. We're like, wait, what? Time has passed? (laughs) This is just a little teaser, a little appetizer, privates. <laughs> little amuse-bouche, if you will. Totally. If you're hungry for more Private Parts Unknown, we've had some really good episodes recently. It's true. We've had some really good episodes, especially my personal favorite is the one we did recently with the journalist, radio host turned civilian soldier, Yuri Matarski. And uh, you should definitely go and listen to that if you haven't yet. Yeah, it's a fascinating perspective from someone who's literally on the ground right now in Ukraine in the middle of that war, just trying to fight for his homeland. And it really puts it in perspective. And he somehow makes a podcast from the war zone. (laughs) So if you don't want to feel like shit about like your life, about how much you're getting done, you're like, oh my God, this dude literally... Fighting for his country and doing a podcast. And ushering press around war journal, other war journalists. Amazing. Anyway, check out that episode. And if you're in the mood for maybe some sexy, you know, your hype on this Nana conversation, you're in the mood for some sexy content. We've had recent episodes about vibrators, a brief history. And recently we talked to Doc Johnson's dick artist, Anjane. And I love that interview, hearing about how she found her job and where she gets her dick art inspiration. I mean, she's a hero. She's the woman that makes our dildos and vibrators for us. She's so talented and I love listening to her creative process. And in between episodes, make sure you're following along on social media to Private Parts Unknown. On Instagram, we are at Private Parts Unknown. On Twitter, we're at Private Parts Un. And if you're still on Facebook, hey, we're there too. Check us out at Private Parts Unknown. And if you want to connect with each of us personally, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Sophia and Cokes. I am at Courtney Kosak, K-O-C-A-K. Get over there. Connect with us. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, we have a really great newsletter. We try to send out extra content kind of as a little extra juge for each episode. And the link is in the episode description. So super easy to hop on that email list. Hey, Sophia, what's that bomb ass music? This bomb-ass music is by our friend, Amy Roche. You should get her music from her website, 
It is amyraasch.com. This episode was mixed by Mike Castaneda from Plastic Audio. Michelangelo, why you make the podcast sound so good? <laughs> we love you, Mike. I give you good advice. That sound is so good. Okay. We love you, Michael. <laughs> I was like, what's this bitch doing? It's weirder every time, Private. Courtney, no one really knows. I don't know what just happened. (laughs) And now it's time for... The Review of the Week. Well, I just discovered a bunch of reviews on Podchaser. So thank you. Shout out to everyone listening to us on Podchaser. Love to be chased. We do love to be chased and we love to be reviewed with a five-star review. Mm, Okay, this one's from The Looker who says, hopped over from Spotify to write a well-deserved review on this platform. If you are curious about the world and everything sensual in it, this is a great podcast for you. The two bodacious hosts approach every interview with open minds, open hearts, and sometimes open flirting. (laughs) This person clearly listens to the podcast. (laughs) That is the most fucking observant call out I have ever heard. If I was to give this review a review, I would give it 5 million stars. Yeah, and some kisses. Okay. And sometimes open flirting, which gives this podcast an air of casual yet intimate conversation with some highly educated friends. The Looker. I love you. The panty remover, more like. Guess what? Soon you're going to be the looky because mama's going to look at you. Yeah. Good job. Um, I'm not even done. <gasps> what? I fortunately have my own Courtney slash Sophia to talk to in real life. But if you don't, I implore you to check this one out because you will learn all that America's sex education could never provide, especially if you are a cisgender, <laughs> especially if you are a cisgender male like me. Hi, girls and everyone betwixt. I freaking love this person. I just am trying to heart their review. I don't know if it worked, but listen. That's the best review ever. Thank I you. I know. You guys, you can make our freaking day like this. You can tell us whatever you observe about us if it's nice. <laughs> if it's a compliment, put it in the review because that just made my day. More than my day. I think I'm going to think about it tonight. Max is going to be like, wow, you're really affectionate. I'm going to be like, shh, the looker is what you go by now. <laughs> the looker. I have a threesome with me, my boo. And my favorite reviewer. (laughs) Not mad at it. Okay, privates, if you want to give us those sweet, sexy compliments, head on over to ratethispodcast.com slash private. Lay it on us. Also, how sweet of the looker to go from Spotify to Podchaser to leave us an extra review. That's the sweetest fucking thing. I mean, again, I do you want me to cry? I'm going to no, cry right I don't, into this microphone. I just, listen, if more of you guys could do that, we would love it. So again, ratethispodcast.com slash private. I'm going to be totally honest. We've gotten two negative reviews on Apple Podcasts lately that have ruined my day. So if oh. you want to head on over and make me feel a lot better and just push those to the side... I would be forever grateful. So thank you. Now you ruined my day. <laughs> no, this is a good podcast. That's why I was so mad about it. Whatever. If you're still listening, you're one of the good ones. We love you. <laughs> <laughs>
Check you guys next time. Bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.